Morning, those of you who are here, those of you who are online, we're glad that you are here this morning. We are really happy to have you here as we explore what it means to follow Christ. Uh, Whether you are uh, new to the Christian faith, never really experienced the church before, just coming back after years away, or been here, been a Christian a long time, we are glad that you are here. We here are um, doing a sermon series on the book of Acts. We're looking at what a church in the midst of a hostile culture looks like when it is following Jesus and contagiously telling the world about the good news of His grace. And so we're continuing in that series. We have hit the 11th chapter of the book of Acts. If you uh, do have a bulletin, it's printed in your bulletin. You may read along. It'll be on your screen and here to read the relevant portion of Scripture is Adrian. Adrian, would you? Adrian, would you come to the middle so that those people online can see you? Thank you. Is this on? Oh, yes. There we go. Acts 11, verses 19 to 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. This is the word of the Lord. We have sung this morning these words. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace. Hold those words in your heart as we reflect together this morning. We're in the midst of a time of discernment here at Grace Toronto. We are praying, imagining, asking God for clear vision and direction for the next few years. We will be engaging you as a congregation through small groups asking you for your thoughts, your dreams, your visions of where we should go. We'll be engaging the staff. We have begun that and we'll be continuing that. And we will be as elders engaging leaders from other churches to help us in our particular journey, our particular values, our particular calling for the future of this church in this city. It is a spring of discernment and we welcome you on that journey. You'll hear more about it if you stay for the town hall this afternoon, this after the service. Every church is called by Jesus 
to find and play those particular notes that Jesus has called us to play. Just as no one individual musician in an orchestra can ever play all the notes of that whole symphony and all the instruments therein, no one church can possibly play every note in the symphony of love and joy and peace and grace that Jesus wants His church to play to the world. Together we all play, and for each church it is to find our notes, our instrument, our part of the score, what we contribute to the whole. So there are particular parts of the whole that we are called to play, and we're seeking God for that. But as we do that, we realize and need to realize that every church is also called to a universal call. Each church is called to look different in some ways, but also the same in many ways. This issue of what is particular to a local church and what is universal to all churches is one of the things that confuses many people and has created a lot of division in and amongst churches. Many people in the past few years have tried to make universal what was actually meant to be a particular expression. For example, how their church responded to COVID and COVID regulations. They have tried to make normative and say every other church should have responded that way. Or even within churches, there are groups that think we should respond one way or the other. These are very particular expressions and applications. But we do this all the time. <clears throat> it's not just in COVID. The kind of worship songs you sing have divided churches and divided churches against churches. The preaching style, the way your building is used, the way your church does hospital, it's a host of things. So what can wisely be considered particular to you or to your church, and what should be held in common by all, and how do we decide that? That can be a complex question, but I say the essential way to answer that question, the non-negotiable way, is to look to the Bible to look to the Scriptures because it answers almost all of these questions. It either instructs us directly or models for us indirectly the things it wants us to hold in common, and it is silent on the things it allows for diversity and particularity of expression. The Bible says nowhere that we should have painted these walls kind of an off-pearl white. It's not, not in the Bible anywhere. Thank goodness it isn't. It was left to the renovation committee to fight that one out and figure it out. But in this snapshot that we see here, in a church in a city called Antioch, we see some common elements modeled for us of how the church was formed, how it grew, that tells us some universal truths about who we need to become and what we need to prioritize. And I will say there are three things here. I know it's always three. That's who you got. You got me. There are three things here that we see in this text at the very least. The first is they established the main thing as the main thing. That's very modern language for what they did. They established the main thing as the main thing, and that is the love of Jesus and love for Jesus. Secondly, they deepened themselves in the main thing so that it stays the main thing through growth and hostility. They established the main thing, and then they deepened themselves in the main thing. And finally, they applied the main thing in the Scripture that was not in the text, but I will share it for you, to sweeten the main thing and strengthen the main thing, because it's all about the main thing. 
Firstly, establishing the main thing. In the first few verses, we see that those who are scattered because of persecution come to Antioch. Now, Antioch, you may not know, but it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It was the most cosmopolitan city. It had been established as a free city. You could get citizenship here that you couldn't get almost anywhere else. You could come from anywhere. And so, Antioch, unlike almost any other city in the Roman Empire, was very cosmopolitan. There were people from China, people from India, people from the South Asian and East Asian areas. There were, of course, the Jewish people, and there were people from all over what we would now call Europe and the Middle East. And there's a new church being formed here. And as the church gets started, we see the remnants of what we saw in the past couple of weeks, this Jewish insularity. They come first and they speak the gospel to the Jews. They share Jesus with other Jewish people so that they can know who their Messiah is. But This is just after Peter's stunning vision from God that the Gentiles should get the gospel too. And so it says here that some intrepid people (laughs) spoke the gospel to Hellenistas, people who spoke Greek. Now, in some contexts, like in if it's in Jerusalem, we would think that's probably the Greek-speaking, Greek-culturated Jews, but here it probably means non-Jewish people. And so the church is breaking free of its insularity, and the response is amazing. People are coming to faith quite substantively. People are pleased. They're astonished. It's a trend that continues today with well over a billion people now from all races, ethnicities, languages, groups, naming the name of Jesus as their God. But here it's the very beginning And so, what does the church do? Word gets back to the leaders in Jerusalem. They're astonished and pleased. What Peter had told them had happened to him is now happening in a major way in a major city. And so, the leaders of the church, including the apostles, send Barnabas, who, by the way, is not an apostle. Interesting. There is central organization, but there is wise delegation. Barnabas is a recognized leader with certain character and certain gifts and certain personalities. His name means son of encouragement. We're told that by the New Testament because he's that kind of guy. He's an encourager. He's a shepherd. One of his gifts, the gift of encouragement, we know. He's described here as full of the Holy Spirit and faith in Jesus and a good man. We know he's generous. He, he sold some land earlier in the book of Acts that he owned. He donated it to the church for the spread of the good news of Jesus. So we get this picture of this man sent to encourage this church of these people, people filled with different ethnic, cultural, and religious backgrounds. Who do they send? An encourager, a shepherd, a unifier. Why? Because the main thing, men and women, is this, that you know the love of Jesus in your heart and in your head and you give back the love of Jesus to Him from your heart and from your head. That's the main thing. It's the essential thing. It's the never-changing thing. It's the foundational thing. And they sent the guy who emanates that from his core of his being to the people who needed it the most. And what does he say? It says here that he told them one thing. (laughs) He was a good man full of Holy Spirit, and people were added what did he say to them? He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's it. 
Remain faithful in your love to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The Greek rendering is a little more emotionally resonant. It speaks... uh, It's from the planned focus and settled plan of your hearts, remain steadfastly cleaving to me in love and faith from your heart, from the deep reserves of affection and love and gratitude that you have because of what Jesus has done for you. Having the cross work of Jesus in front of you, abide with me. Stay tender toward me. Be loyal. Do not depart from Jesus. Wherever you are in your journey of faith, this is the main thing. I don't care how much you know. I don't care how many seminary degrees you may have. If you don't have this, you don't have the one thing. I don't care how new you are to Christianity. If you get this, you get the main thing. That's why so often skeptics are so helpful to Christians because they know that the main thing is we're supposed to love God and love each other. They don't know much else, but they know the main thing. And we get so distracted. And so I need to tell you, if you're not yet a Christian, your call this morning is to experience this main thing, is to understand the gift that God has given to you in Jesus in coming to earth out of love for you, in living a perfect life of love to show you His love and the true loving face of God for you, and then of giving up His life as a sacrificial gift to you to take the sin that is on you and to take the debt and the guilt of it from you and to put it upon himself that you might be free of it. And he's calling you, come to me. Leave behind your selfish, self-directed life. Come to me for the forgiveness of that selfishness. Ask for forgiveness and I will grant it. Ask for the gift of eternal life and it shall be yours. Several years ago, I was talking to a university student who was struggling with this idea. They'd grown up in a, an intensely religious household, but the main thing had not been taught. And so they really struggled with this. And uh, I'll give a name for this person. It's not their name, but for the sake of confidentiality, I read a verse. It's a verse many of us have seen, John 3.16. It's a very famous verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. I said, can you make this personal? I'll call her Jane because she's not Jane. I said, can you say, for God so loved Jane that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus, that if Jane believed in Him, she would have eternal life. And she read, for God so loved. For God so loved. And she began to cry. She could not believe that the God of the universe could love her that unconditionally and that fully that he would die for her. She didn't feel like she deserved that love. And I said, you're right, you don't but he gives it anyway because it's a gift. Do you want the gift you don't deserve? She said, I do. So then she said, for God so loved Jane that he gave his own, and then she just broke down and she received the gift and her life was radically changed. If you're not a Christian, this is the gift offered to you. And if you're a Christian, 
This is the gift you need to never forget about. This is your chief joy in life that God has loved you so much that He gave Jesus for you. But to be a child of Jesus who experiences the grace of Jesus and is filled with the love that Jesus has for them and feels the adopting love of the Father because of Jesus, there is nothing better. That's why the author of Hebrews, who has one of the most intense, profound, almost for many new Christians, hard to understand doctrines of Jesus, says this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross for you. What did John recount to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation that Jesus told them to say, but these are the words of Jesus. Jesus says to that church, I know your work. I know your toil and your patient endurance. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not apostles. You found them to be false. You are enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that your first love you have left. is the main thing, still the main thing in your life. You see, where the love of Jesus runs strong to Jesus from you and from Jesus to you, health and love and mercy and justice, forgiveness and grace abound because Jesus' spirit has free reign inside of you to unleash those things in you. But where the love of Jesus is drying up in you, joy is drying up, peace is drying up, generosity is being strangled, division and strife are growing up, weariness and weariness are raising up. The best thing we can be as a church and the best thing you can bring to this church if you are part of this church or if you are visiting back to your own church is your love for Jesus and your experience of His love for you. That's the main thing. The best thing you can attend to in your church is not your acts of service, not your spiritual gifts, not your tremendous personality, but your love for Jesus. The best thing we pastors and elders and leaders can give to you is not our gifts, but our love. Not for you, but for Him. Because in our love for Him comes our love for you. Now, hear these words. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the main thing. Is He the main thing for you? Just check. Check your vital signs. Check your prayer life. Do you long to spend time alone with Him? If He doesn't feel that attractive to you, something has gotten in the way of your love for Him and your experience of His love for you. Check your desire to worship Him. 
I know when I'm driving, I love to listen to music. And I can tell where my heart is by the music I choose. I bet I'm not alone. Do you want to listen to worship songs? Do you want to worship Jesus when you have a chance? Thirdly, check your temptation meter. Is it running high? Are the things around you that you can see and feel and achieve, are they grabbing a hold of your heart? If so, then the love of Jesus has faded a little bit and given room in your heart for them to grow. Your temptation meter tells you a lot about how main the main thing is. All right. Finally, check your desire to fellowship with other Christians for the sake of spiritual encouragement. So my encouragement to you is come to Jesus. Make him the main thing. If for the very first time, just ask him into your life, confess your sins. But you may need to come back to him. You may have wandered hours ago, days ago, weeks ago, months ago. Come back to him. He is the main thing. And he deserves to always be the main thing. Establish him as the main thing or reestablish him. Secondly, deepen the main thing so that it stays the main thing through hostility and through growth. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. <laughs> I'll tell you how countercultural that is in a minute. And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. That's verse 25 and 26. So the church is growing, and it's, it's going well. And, uh, if you're not a Christian, we're going to take a moment, and you're going to give you the inside scoop on what the Christian world is like here. So uh, dial in and listen. By the way, there's, in, a, in an audience this size, we've done a survey well over a third of the people who answer our connections cards say they're coming back to their faith or not yet in the faith. So if you feel like you're alone because you're investigating Christianity, you're not. You're probably 15 or 20 percent of, of this population. But the church is growing well, but we're going to give you a little insight into how churches and church industries operate. Now, how in most churches, if rapid growth and all this beautiful counterculture, uh, uh, not countercultural, sorry, um, multicultural growth is happening, uh, what, what do churches generally do? Well, I know what they do because I'm a pastor and I get invited to all the conferences they tell me to come to. Hmm. We figured it out. We figured out how to have racial harmony in our church. We'll show you how to grow a multicultural church. Come to this, buy our book, read our stuff, come to our conference. We figured it out. They brand themselves. What did Barnabas do? He left them. In the middle of their growth, he left them. Why? Because he wasn't looking at himself and his branding and his reputation. He was looking to serve them. Why? Because he's looking for what they need now and they need in the future. He's not looking behind and celebrating and patting himself on the back. He's looking at the future needs of a growing cosmopolitan church and he's saying, I need help. We're going to the next stage. The foundation has been laid. Now we need to build. 
but we need to build by deepening the foundation. So what does he do? He gets Saul. He leaves, which isn't like hopped on an airplane, like it's weeks. Had to find him, didn't know where he was, couldn't Google him, didn't, couldn't text him, right? Searching around, anyone, anyone seen Saul? He goes to Tarsus, you know, asks the Christians there, finds him, comes back. It's probably several weeks. Why is he doing that? Because the Spirit has told Barnabas that Saul is called to be the apostle, the main apostle to share the gospel to non-Jewish Christians. But he also knows something else about Saul. Saul, by training as a Pharisee, he's a gifted, precise, deep, doctrinally trained teacher. That's what a Pharisee is. So what Barnabas seeks out is somebody who can speak and translate the gospel to a secular world and can deeply teach its roots and meaning to everybody. So why? Why go so deep in Christian teaching? Is that really central to us? You know, there are two myths, and we need to talk about them and address them here because you probably have them if you've experienced Christianity for any length of time. The first one is that doctrine always divides, so stay away. The second one is doctrine distracts from mission, so stay away. And so we have a plethora of churches in Christianity that avoid deep teaching because they think it's divisive and they think it's distracting. And I want to actually poke a few holes in both of those myths because I think you will see here it's the opposite. Doctrine divides. It's a particular inside discussion we have. Now, there is a general truth that people who study world religions have noticed that most religions do divide at some fine points of doctrine, so there's legitimate places of disagreement. The Muslims do it, the Hindus do it, the Jewish people do it, and boy, oh boy, do Christians do it. There's no question about that objectively, statistically. These disagreements are obvious, and they're too proven to be denied. But what Paul points out in another letter to a very divided church is that most division in Christianity actually comes from not knowing your beliefs deeply enough. A spectacular case in point, of course, is the church of Corinth, riven by divisions, multiple divisions, uh, and we're going to see some of them. I'm going to give you one chapter And I'm going to give you Paul's response to four places of diverting from gospel living and diverting from gospel unity. Okay, firstly, Corinthian Christians are suing one another in court. That's the beginning of chapter 6. That's pretty serious division. We're suing each other in court. Okay, what does Paul say? Paul says this, verse 2, do you not know that the saints, Christians, will judge the world? Paul's answer isn't, hey, guys, go to mediation. It's not, hey, guys, go to counseling. Paul's answer is, do you not know? This is a rhetorical device Paul uses for, I was there. I lived with you for well over nine months. I taught you these things. How in the world did you forget what you should already know? Do you not know, i.e., yes, you do. I taught it to you. Do you not know this? All right. Second major issue, guilty of sexual immorality, which was destroying the church ethically and dividing the church relationally. The men in the church were doing what people in the city of Corinth regularly did, which is they went and they slept with temple prostitutes at pagan temples. 
And here we go again. Do you not know? Verse 15. That your bodies are members of Christ. Your bodies are part of the body of Jesus. Do you not know that essential doctrine? That deeper level of teaching about Christ. How come you forgot it? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And then Paul finishes his argument up against general sexual immorality because there is general sexual immorality amongst the church, including, as we will find out later in the letter, that there's a man sleeping with his father's wife. Do you not know? <laughs> you forgot what you were taught. Deeper levels of implication and understanding. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Actually, he does it four times. I skipped one for the sake of time. Four times Paul berates them for serious departures from unity and from ethical, proper, loving Christian living, and all four, the root is they didn't know their doctrine deeply enough. How does Paul then answer one of the central divisions of the church that he begins 1 Corinthians with? He says, what I mean, chapter 1, verse 12, that each one of you says, I will follow Paul, that's him, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow Christ. Here's his solution. Is Christ divided? Doctrine. We're all one body. Men and women, in nine months of staying with them, Paul taught them some pretty deep doctrines. When I read this and had to speak about it a few years ago here, I realized I've been preaching to Grace Toronto for 16 years. <laughs> it was about the 12th year when I read this. I have never taught you some of the doctrines that he taught them in eight months. Deep teaching directly related to who Jesus is and who you are as a result of being a Christian. Not any deep teaching deep teaching about the main thing, Jesus, and who we are in relation to Him, and therefore in relation to each other. Paul went deep from a Christocentric, shall we say, foundation, and he built from the idea of the cross and forgiveness of sins, he built the whole new identity of a human being whole new identity of a people of God, whole new way of living as an implication of that identity, which is an implication of what Jesus did. It's all built on that foundation. The main thing is just getting thicker and steeper and deeper. When I was about seven or eight years old, my father, who was an engineer, and I were walking downtown uh, Montreal. We were walking by a construction site, and my father made me stop and he said, now, son, look, look, look into that construction site. You know, it's like a little hole that you can see, and the, they fenced it off, and there was just a little hole. So I'm like tiptoeing, and I'm looking, and I'm like, what am I supposed to look at? There's nothing but like dirt. He said, look, what's going on? I said, well, there's a, there's a big hole being dug. He said, yes. Now, as an engineer, he got that kind of very engineering face. You ever seen the engineer face? Can you tell what kind of building that will be, son? And I said, no, I have no idea. Do you? He says, oh, yes. 
it's going to be a very tall building. I said, how do you know? He said, look how deep the hole is. I said, what does that have to do with it? He said, son, the depth of the foundation being built always tells you the height of the building being built. Now let me put my deep pastoral engineer face on and go, hmm. (laughs) You want your church to grow? You need to deepen the foundation. You want the tree to spread larger and cover more people with its shade and its beauty? It needs deeper roots. Depth of doctrine and teaching is no enemy of unity, nor is it an enemy of growth. Now, I want to finally ask you one thing. In light of the idea that it distracts from mission, the second objection, I want to ask you a question. If you have something that you want to do and it's really hard to do, what makes you do it anyways? The worthiness of the thing you want to do. When I was in Alberta this summer, I found out that the parking lot to Lake Moraine fills up at 5.45 in the morning. Five four. Now, it's a smallish parking lot. I will grant you that. But who in the world is going to a lake by 5.45 in the morning? People who know the beauty of Lake Moraine. We were driving, went right by it. It was full. But we were still pretty early. We knew we'd be early enough to get into the Lake Louise parking lot. We got into the Lake Louise parking lot, and while we're driving, you know, we'd woken people up early enough to get there on time, and my daughter had legitimate murmuring. She'd never been, and she's like, do we really need to get up this early? You know, i.e., is it worth the cost? And then we got to Lake Louise, and it was worth every moment. You feel God at Lake Louise, or I do, in ways that I don't feel God almost anywhere else. When the culture gets hostile and it's hard to be a Christian, what's going to make you find the motivation to keep going unless you have deepened the beauty of Jesus such that the beauty of Jesus is still greater than the temptation to stop following Him? The Christian life, men and women, in a hostile culture, the witness of Christianity by people, the willingness to be a public witness is directly dependent on how beautiful Jesus is to the Christian, and that's it. Training won't get you there. Head knowledge won't get you there. Experience won't get the… You have to want Jesus more than what the world has to offer and when it's hard to follow Him. The only thing that keeps you following Him, the main thing, is that the beauty of Him is so deeply rooted in your soul, He's still worth it. Deep teaching doesn't distract from mission. Deep teaching drives authentic mission. Keep establish the main thing as the main thing. Deepen the main thing. So that as you grow and as you encounter hostility, you keep the main thing, the main thing. Finally, 
apply the main thing. Let me read to you a paragraph that I forgot to ask to be included. I don't want you to hear this. In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place, actually, in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to their ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the gospel applied. This is the application of the main thing. People have a love of Jesus. They find out there's a need because of an impending famine, and they respond. I want to note two things that come from this text. Firstly, note how responsive they are to some prophetic word. This is a challenge for us in a very anti-supernatural age, to think that God can communicate us that immediately and that specifically. But this is a very deeply taught church, yet their intellectual depth does not get in the way of their spiritual sensitivity. They're willing to hear from God and do what God says. It's beautiful. Men and women, the spiritual dimension of life is razor thin boundary between it and you and me right now. Matter of fact, there is none. There are angels and demons here right now. There is the Spirit of God all over the place here, right now. We are in an enchanted, spiritually rich environment. Do not miss it. But secondly, note the generosity in applying the gospel principle of love to a specific need, imbibing the deeper teaching about what Paul had taught them and the unity of the faith, these brand new Greek-speaking, Chinese, Indian, Turkish, European Christians gave their money, gave what they could to the Jewish community who had started the church. Men and women, mercy and justice are necessary implications of the gospel. They are not the gospel. They are the application of the gospel and they show that we understand the gospel when we apply the gospel in mercy and justice. The gospel always has implications that show the reality of it in our lives. Love, grace, mercy, justice, generosity, forgiveness. These things are applications of Christianity. Meeting concrete needs of needy people has always been one of the outstanding characteristics of the church of Jesus. Giving generously is not the main thing. Jesus is. Being devoted to Jesus, though, means being devoted to His bride, His body. It means knowing you're not your own, knowing that He owns everything, including you, and you're a steward of what He's given you. A deep, robust doctrine of the unity of Christians drove these people to open their wallets. Well, they didn't have wallets, I don't think, but open, you know, and save lives of people they now consider family, whose names they didn't even know. What does this applying of the main thing do? It sweetened the name of Jesus to the churches in Judea and Jerusalem who found out my Greek brothers and sisters of whom I struggled to give the gospel with are now giving me money. 
It sweetened the name of Jesus to the people who gave it. They felt like they really understood the gospel and were so excited to see concrete showing of their own maturity. It sweetened the gospel to the culture. The culture is watching racism being overcome, ethnic divisions being obliterated, economic disparities being challenged. It sweetened the gospel. Men and women, when our young people Our teenagers see us living out the gospel, applying the main thing. It deepens and strengthens their belief and their faith. What are we doing now to help those young parents there and there? What are we showing to their kids to encourage them in their parenting of their kids that Jesus is real and sweet? Small groups, as a small group, What can you do as a group to apply the gospel to the needs of this city? Men and women, the gospel applied is Jesus glorified. The gospel applied is the aroma of Christ spread to the city. The gospel of Christ applied is the joy of Christ expressed by the people of Christ, empowered by the Spirit of Christ to the world that Christ came for, lived for, died for, rose for, is praying for, and is going to come back for. How do I know that the gospel applied is the gospel beautified? I know because the gospel applied is Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus is the gospel applied. Jesus is God giving you not just words to think about and meditate, but Jesus is God doing something to apply his love to a world desperately in need of it. He sent his son who came in mercy and love and grace. Everything changed about our understanding of God when his grace had a face. When grace became flesh and love became blood, the gospel came alive. And now the world knows the love of God because God who is love applied the gospel to those of us who needed love, becoming one of us and then dying for us to pay for us that we might live with him. Men and women, he is the application of the gospel. He is the sweetness of it. He is what we eat and drink and thrill our hearts with. Final applications. If Jesus is not your main thing, make him so. Ask him into your life. In the words of City of Light, his love is my reward. Men and women put practices of going deeper to keep Jesus and his love your main thing. Ten-minute talks and blogs won't do it. Thick books about Jesus, the main thing. This is the kind of stuff that will feed your soul. Get off TikTok. Get on Kindle. Apply the main thing to a world in need and he will be sweeter to you, to those around you, and to those who don't know him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you are the main thing. May we as a church keep you as the main thing. 
deepen ourselves in you is the main thing and keep applying you and your love to the city and sweetening you to the world, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I'm sure I've gone way too long, so we'll have a very, I think, abbreviated Q&A. That's correct. We have time for only one question, and the, the Q&A today will be only addressing questions uh, that are pertinent to the text that we have uh, heard read today and that Dan has preached on. And so uh, the first question, and the only question we'll be able to explore today is, how is it possible, how is it possible to want Jesus more by our own strength? Isn't our desire for God solely controlled by God? It's a good question. It sounds like there's a distinction here, maybe a deeper teaching we can learn about uh, our relationship between our own desires to want Jesus and our ability to love Jesus versus God. Okay, yeah, I'll answer the first part of that first question since there are seven questions in the one. Um, uh, how, do you re- how, do you, how do you collaborate with God in kindling your desire for the main thing? I asked this very question as a new Christian to a man who um, was from um, the Bahamas. He became the Bahamian minister of sport. But at the time, we were both university students, and he said, it's simple. Desire to feel desire when you don't. I said, what? He said, look, when your relationship with God feels like drudgery, submit to seeking God with discipline as a duty. It's your duty to desire God, and if you don't feel like it yet, do your duty and seek Him. Because duty and dis- will turn into discipline. And sooner or later, as you keep seeking God, the discipline and the duty will become a desire again. And you will desire, and you keep seeking Him, and your desire will become a delight. So I pray, when my desire for God is in the place of drudgery, I pray for discipline to seek Him in duty until duty becomes desire and desire becomes delight. That's my answer. We now have time for a song of response. Please stand.